Hi, and welcome to the 10th episode of the It's a Mimic Campaign Builder. I'm Adam. And I'm Dan. And over the course of this series, we will be sitting down and creating a session-by-session campaign that you can either follow along with week-by-week or take inspiration from as you see fit. We know that every table is different, and so is every Dungeon Master. So please take what you want from each of these episodes and use, adapt, and take away whatever you need to in order to make things work for your campaign. This unique episode will focus on the concept of encounter building for dynamic encounters and how to add depth and flexibility. We're going to break down our most useful tips and tricks and hopefully give you some additional inspiration for your own session prepping. We don't know who our party's going to be yet, and we certainly don't know yours. So, we'll be designing encounters for an assumed party of the following five archetypes. A warrior, a priest, a mage, a criminal, and an outdoorsman. Let's get to building. So episode five talked about what a dynamic encounter is. So what we're going to talk about in this one is how it's different um, from other ones, how to build this compared to regular encounters, yeah. and how something like, let's say, exploration in a dynamic encounter will be different from a exploration encounter on its own, a singular encounter, Yeah. right? So we're going to break down kind of our, our tips and tricks for everybody about how we do it and... But once again, a dynamic encounter is something that is not one of the simple basic pillars of combat, exploration, or roleplay. Again, episode five of this campaign builder series breaks it all down, um, down into the minutia of it. But honestly, it, it comes down to the fact that this is going to be interrupted by something else. Yeah. You're going to stay in the same general location or in the same beat of your story campaign, of your campaign story, rather. Um, but... It's going to be the campaign. Uh, the the encounter is going to evolve in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, and so we include that by mixing and matching the pillars. Uh, dynamic encounters can include interrupting or evolving multiple times, but we're going to focus on on two. Two. <laughs> uh, two. Otherwise, we'll be here all night. Yeah. So, um, but I mean, we mentioned this before. If you feel confident with two, you've put a little bit more practice into it. Don't be afraid of adding a third aspect. But I would I would recommend. If you are having a single encounter that has three different aspects in it, give your players a break because uh, fatigue is a killer. Yeah, you're going to uh, really push their boundaries of being able to handle things and you're, they're going to watch their resources dwindle. And that's going to be a major issue. You may think that this is good and fun to have combat turn into exploration, turn into combat and then role playing and some more combat. But your wizard blew their seventh level spell in the first combat and now they're sitting there sweating so now, you have to give them the ability to breathe after these now if this is a big set piece battle or a set piece encounter involving your big bad evil guy that's one thing but for a run of the mill like dungeon delve come on guys like you could you could give them a break let them breathe and explore and loot the room before you move on to the next thing right so remember that there are the the three pillars there's also skill challenges downtime and party politics. And while there are some other things like puzzles and riddles, which we'll talk about later, those are our, our big ones. And that's what we're going to talk about again today, about what are the challenges uh, of creating these encounters? What are you going to run into when you're building them yourself? But first, let's talk about 
about why we do this. We do it mainly because uh, it adds intrigue. It adds a little bit of uh, more real grit to your encounters, to your sessions. Um, if you have like you walk into a room and you kill a dude and then this is done and then there's a hard break and then you move into this room and then you talk to this person, it gets robotic. It gets mechanical. Let me tell you a story, Dan. Before oh. you joined my campaign, I had a keep uh, that was abandoned and it was absolutely full of demons but the demons were all sealed in separate rooms oh fun so the idea was for the party to go room by room all the way through it and i sat down and this was before mordenkainen's came out um i sat down and i took all of the demons that i could find from pathfinder fourth edition and 3.5 and i adapted them all into fifth edition and every room was radically different with a different demon that had a different thing going on but every one of them was going to be a combat encounter there, there were a hundred and eight rooms. Yeah, that that sounds to me like a exhausting thing. Not because it wouldn't be fun to kill every single demon, but you'd walk out, walk to the next door, gather yourself, psych yourself up, open the door, and now you got another combat. Right. And my perspective at the time was that every time that they stop, those demons are sealed in. They can go back to the encampment. And they can have as much downtime as they want, and they can manage their resources and talk to NPCs and go exploring other plot hooks in between these, but they couldn't move forward in the story until they had cleared all 108 rooms. And what's the difference between fighting kobolds over here and goblins over there out in the wilderness and chasing down that guy and then killing him, right? And now there's a bandit. Why is there any difference between that and, and rooms full of demons? Mechanically, there isn't. But thematically, there it was identical room after room after room. And it became a grind. We put six 12-hour sessions into it. Oh, jeez. And by the end of the third session, they said, I don't know, it's getting late. I've got work tomorrow, but let's cross a couple of these rooms off before we call it a night. And when they started to use language like that, I went, well, shit, I'm this, in it now. Yeah. And I've already said, you have 108 rooms to go through. Here's the map of of the entire area and here's where the most evil is radiating from. And I gave him the opportunity to do it. And there was nothing changing. It was boring. Prop props to your party for making it through all that. Terry was one of them. And so he went through that grind and he said to me afterwards, like, you know, I love killing stuff as much as the next person. There's some really neat monsters in there, but that was a grind. And I never want to do that again. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, okay, so there's nothing to do with mega dungeons. Demons are one note. And this was, Earlier in my DMing career, and it <laughs> took me a minute to realize uh, what I was doing wrong, and I fixed that. I could have fixed all of it by making each one of those a dynamic encounter. Yeah, and that that's just adding a little bit of spice to the meal of the encounter, right? That 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 that's all it really takes. I mean, you are going to run into a bit of a danger here when um, you're you're building these encounters of. If they're too bland, your party's just going to mechanically go through them. And then you're playing a tactical war game on the table. If you add too much, though, things might start getting a little hairy. And there's a bit of an illusion of danger and uh, chaos when it comes to these things. Okay, yeah. Look, the idea is that if every single one of your encounters evolves, they're never going to trust you. Yeah. And this entire series is about dynamic encounters that we would throw into scenarios, but it's with the assumption under the premise that you have other encounters, you're hitting other story beats as well. These are the important dynamic set piece encounters during your session. Assuming that you're going to run a 10 hour session, you've mm -hmm. devoted a Saturday to this, right? So yeah. sometimes you're not going to be able to do it. You would have to split up one of our episodes into two or three sessions mm -hmm. to have all six dynamic encounters, which is why we say in our intro, 
pick and choose. Yeah. Right. You throw away what you want, keep what you need. Right. And, and adapt. Right. And that's what you need to do as a DM. And that's what we're talking about with encounters, adaptable encounters. Yeah. So as much as we have a plan, we, again, we said in the fifth episode, no plan survives contact with the enemy. So this is what we're talking about. The yeah. adaptability and when to bail on your ideas, when to use them and, and how to prep them so that they're going to be effective. Yeah. Because it is going to feel chaotic if you're doing it all the time. And chaos equals danger. And your players want to be heroes. They don't want to be on their back foot all of the time. It's good to make them feel that way sometimes. Yeah. And I mean, hopefully after after this episode, you guys will have kind of an idea how to better build these uh, build these encounters. Whether you are planning a set piece encounter that in some way progresses the plot or you're running off a random encounter table. There is going to be some things like the way I kind of run it in my head is... An encounter must always mean something, but it doesn't always have to mean something to the plot. Yes. For me, an encounter is when something gets accomplished. Yes. Which, I mean, if, if, if you're running just a straight up combat encounter, you're, what means something is that thing was living and now it is dead. That's not sufficient. I want to see, like, um, if, if you are rolling uh, for a tribe of or a pride of lions attacks a carriage, your group's carriage, as you're wandering through the grasslands off the random encounter table... Have that pride attacking your carriage for a reason. They're non-intelligent animals. It's not that hard to have a reason. And then you could transfer that into another one of these dynamic encounters to pull a little bit more flavor and realism to your world. Look, we've talked about it on the other podcast. We talked about it a bit with our Big Bad Evil Guy episode on this podcast. You need to have a motivation for your monsters and your creatures. There has to be a reason why for everything. And once you understand that, you'll be able to know all of the different reasons why things are happening. You can make things more complicated, and that's where these dynamic encounters come into play. Yeah. So let's stop talking about the why, though, and let's start talking about the how. Yeah. It's very easy to come up with why we start with a combat and exploration or a role-playing encounter, because there are those things all the time in D&D anyway. You know how those get started. But when we're interrupting or we're evolving an encounter with combat, exploration, or role-playing coming in partway through, that can be challenging to people. Mm -hmm. How can we inject that in? And as much as we have examples in every one of our our regular session episodes, it's important for us to understand the foundations of this. So let's roll initiative uh, and we'll go through what's a challenge of introducing a combat into the middle of another encounter. And how do you get past that challenge? Sure. Let's roll. I got a five. I got a 15. Well, I, I there's one thing before you get started. I do want to say everything has to have a reason applies to all of this. Just so we're not repeating ourselves as we're going through all of this. Yes, absolutely. Right? There, there needs to be some sort of logic, whether it be monster outworldly logic or conniving evil human logic. There should still be logic. A lion is going to have different motivation from a fae to a devil to an aarakocra. Yeah. But they all have their own reason for doing things. Yeah. So so when you're building these encounters, remember, it's got to make some sort of logical sense. Yes. Don't just have the Tarasque suddenly stomp on your party. Yeah. Out of nowhere. Yeah. Anyways, you rolled the 15. So uh, challenges of introducing an ending of an encounter or, or, or introducing the shift of, of an encounter to combat. So one of the big problems is that you're going to consistently be catching the players off guard. 
they're going to feel ambushed all of the time. And if you constantly have an NPC get suspicious and draw steel over and over and over, they'll stop talking to NPCs. Mm -hmm. So it can't just be an ambush or a sudden turning of the tide. It's fun to say, oh yeah, they walk up to that merchant on the side of the road they just bumped into on the road, but they're secretly bandits. You can't do that more than once. No, do it. But don't do it a lot. My my general rule is I feel like I can do this once per tier. Yep. And then I've got to have something else. So with combat specifically, because there's so much combat in this game, repetition is a, is a deal breaker. It's a killer for people. Um, even if you're getting hunted down by the Assassin's Guild and they just keep popping up over and over and over again in the middle of you doing other things, it can't be the same kind of assassin. It can't be guy with a knife shows up and stabs you in the back. Maybe this one's an archer, maybe this one uses poison, maybe this one's a spellcaster, but it has to be different and it can't always be an ambush. And so when I want it to break out into combat, and it's really easy with exploration and with uh, role-playing, I have the players, I just put them in a scenario during the co- during the encounter where they're going to want to fight. Yeah. For example, I will use an NPC in a role-playing encounter to go to them. Or I will say, you guys have scouted ahead successfully, your outdoorsmen or your criminal have realized that over there around the corner are two guards. And they're guarding the thing that you're here for. What would you like to do? We haven't rolled initiative yet. We're in the exact same area, but this is still the same encounter. But we've taken this exploration, we've hit a roadblock, and now they have the agency. And even though I've designed the encounter, they're the ones that pull the trigger on it. Yeah. Um, you really want to embrace uh, player agency when it comes to bringing combat in. Nothing will uh, pull the rug out from your players harder than them doing really well on a social role-playing encounter that still, for some reason, ends with combat. Like you've said, repetition is killer for this. And and keeping things interesting is always a good way of doing it. Um, what I like to kind of do is... Um, I mean, you have to embrace agency with your players. You have to uh, let them feel like they're the ones who are kind of driving the narrative. And ultimately, they are the ones. Um, and and having an NPC goad from a uh, role-playing into a combat is, is nice. I also ha- like having um, items or things present that will bring and inspire a certain amount of uh, bloodthirstiness in my players if I want to pull something towards a combat encounter. Yeah, you can have that even in the NPCs as well. Like, suddenly they notice your ancestral sword and say, oh, shit, I want that. Yeah. Right? If your stealth or your sleight of hand or your deception didn't work as well as you wanted it to, then it can turn into a combat. So combat, a lot of times, is failing a check, which will result in combat. Yeah. The obvious one there is stealth. Yeah, yeah, or or persuasion. Yeah. Also, or, or more specifically, intimidate. <laughs> you, you fail that intimidate check and they go, all right, no, yeah, I'll call you on that bluff. Let's see if you really are as strong as you think you are, crack knuckles. Let's do this. All right, so challenges of ending with exploration. Shall we roll? Yeah, let's do it. Got a nine. I got a five. What is the biggest challenge of... Uh, ending or or transitioning into an exploration in a dynamic encounter and what's your what's your way of getting around it uh, for me the biggest challenge of ending or transitioning into an ex- exploration is getting the party to let go of whatever they were currently doing to start moving um, sometimes there will always be that one guy who wants to stay in the loot 
say if you're starting from a combat encounter and you're moving into an exploration, there's always that one guy that's going to want to stay in loot. There's always, if you're moving from a role play into an ex, uh, exploration, there's always that one player that's going to want to stay and continue talking, right? So I like to make the exploration something that is a bit irresistible to do. Um, and that's by changing the landscape around them in the moment and having them deal with a landscape change. The way I'll often do this is... Uh, a mudslide pulls the feet out from under them or they discover a new uh, uh, trapdoor cave entrance or something in their searches of their other explorations, right? Um, if they're doing combat, one of them gets away, right? Um, oh, one of the enemies gets one away. One of the enemies gets away um, with vital information that kind of spurned the combat in the first place, right? This, this is all the kind of stuff I want to pull the players and make it desirable to them to chase, what about you? What do you got? So for exploration, for me, how to get there, there's all sorts of ways someone's going to escape to go get reinforcements or they got away with that wand that you came here to go get or they know the, the location or the layout of whatever it is. Yeah. The problem with suddenly making an exploration, it often becomes a chase or it becomes suddenly adding skill checks and saves in. And it often feels out of the blue. There are nine goblins. We've killed seven of them. The one we want is running now. God damn it. And that's what they say around the table. The player's like, ah, Jesus, we, you should have gotten killed that guy first. Or why did nobody grapple them? Or whatever it is. And they start, they get frustrated when it becomes exploration. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of frustration involved. Because when it becomes exploration, it tends to be more about character choices that got us there. And not roles that got us there. Yeah. So what I do is I foreshadow. I love the idea of the shifting environment. That's what I always go to as well as a general rule, right? There's a mudslide or whatever. I like the idea of you're in the middle of fighting and you're standing on the carpet and all of a sudden the trapdoor underneath you gives way. You had no idea that trapdoor was there, but it just gives way and suddenly you're down a hole. Yeah. But that can just seem out of the blue. And if you have a reputation of a DM as not being reliable, that's going to seem like you're just being a dick. Yep. So... I foreshadow it. You hear the creaking of wood under your feet. Give me... What's your passive per perception check? What's your passive stealth? What is it? You will hear the beating of the wings before the dragon flies overhead. You will hear the... You'll suddenly realize that you are in shadow when mm -hmm. you weren't before. The All of the candles will start to blow and, and the curtains will billow. There will be these environmental hints that something is coming or something is going to change. If it is a mudslide, there is a low rumble. And every round, on initiative count 20, see, I use the lair action rules for this, yep. it gets louder. The the passive perception or the um, even even active perception, if they want to stop and on their turn, they want to look around for a minute, let them, and every time that it gets, every round that goes by, it gets easier and easier and easier. Allow your players to take in the evolving terrain or yeah. the evolving circumstances around them so that they can react to it and maybe this in this um, environmental portion of your dynamic encounter never gets off because they rolled high enough perception that they were able to climb a tree and avoid the mudslide yeah but Another but hold up but that alone is exploration because now they're up a tree yep right and the and the ground is now difficult terrain beneath them and so it still works out not in the way that I expected. This is also an uh, instance where you could put in, um, uh, and I know we're going to be talking about creating puzzles and riddles later, but you can put in a puzzle in a room during a combat encounter 
that requires your players to have to search out and deal with the room and have this become apparent to them the second round, the third round into combat. Remember, combat in all actuality doesn't last that long. This is definitely not something you say on round 10, I'll give them this information. No, no, no. The combat's long over by round 10. Yeah. Round two, round three, you should be giving this information. Give them one round to kind of get situated. And then you could start feeding them little tidbits of information that they might need to like gather all of the puzzle pieces, literal puzzle pieces to assemble the door to get out of the room. Or, or, or it could be something as simple as the walls are closing in and there's a skeleton in there, but they're level four. That is a combat encounter where they're fighting a skeleton, but the walls are closing in and they've wasted time doing that. Yeah. And now it's an environmental and it's an exploration. Um, it's some sort of uh, task oriented uh, encounter to get out. Yeah. They're and, trying to get a hold of their uh, warforged artificer to shut down all the trash compactors on the detention level. God, I hate you. I love you too. All right, so challenges of role-playing then. Yeah. Okay, how do we get into role-playing in the middle of of a dynamic encounter? 13. I got an 11. All right, so getting into a role-playing encounter is uh, um, set a threshold for whatever combat you're dealing with where people give up and have this pre-established before you're going in. Um, Look, any monster with an intelligence of four or higher should have the desire to preserve its own life. Exactly. Right? Now, I'm not counting cultists and the insane and the... We don't... The yeah, there are twisted. all sorts of zealots out there. Well, we're talking about the average yeah. monster. Will want to preserve its own life. Even animals, once they get to a certain hit point perspective, even if they're not intelligent, once they get to a hit point percentage, they're going to want to bail. They know that they're beaten. They're done. And it's higher than you might think. Don't yeah. make don't make that twenty percent. Make it sixty percent. Yeah, right. Um, so have that going in, just in the back of your mind. This is going to make a lot of your encounters a little bit less, like straight up deadly, which will bring a little bit more reality into the world, and will let's be honest, make your paladins happier. Look, we always talk about the goblin boss. That if you kill the goblin boss, the rest of the goblins suddenly like surrender. But if you reduce any given goblin to sixty percent of their hit points, they should retreat and get behind the boss. And the boss should be mad at them, right? And this adds now role-playing factor to it so that on the goblin boss's turn, they're they're interacting. They are role-playing with the other goblins instead of attacking. And that's my thing is you don't need to wait for the party to stop fighting. If they want to keep swinging swords and casting fireballs, then let them. But it should be clear that when all of the enemies stand down, or when you are exploring and all of a sudden you turn the corner and there's a person willing to talk, that they take the opportunity to talk as diplomacy is the best way. You had the same answer I was going to have. Yeah. So that's that's all it is, is know when your NPCs will stop doing whatever it is that they're doing. And they will try to talk their way out of this specific scenario, out of this combat, or out of this... If you just walk out of the darkness in the middle of a dungeon, there's a minotaur sitting there filing his fingernails. And he looks up at you and goes, oh, oh. Okay, um, we're supposed to fight, but hold on a sec. Who are you and tell me everything that there is to know about you? I still haven't done my horns yet. Yeah, exactly, right? This could be a funny little encounter that, that shows up, but they're stopping whatever they're doing because they see you, and that's the trigger. And we should talk about the triggering action that shifts from one to the other. That's what we need to be thinking about. Mm-hmm. What is the triggering action? So, And you should set up a couple of different ways as a DM and be open to it 
when the players come up with another way that would, in theory, trigger it. And again, this is why knowing what your monster or your bad guy is about is so important. Understanding their motivation. And you could foreshadow this as well, going back to the exploration one. Have a little bit of foreshadowing in this as well in the regards of, like, maybe you collect an item that is not necessarily important to your characters. It even makes sense of why it's in the room. And then you get to this role-play encounter. They see you have it. And, oh, I lost that. Can I have that back? Right? Having something like that, having some reason that it might not necessarily be self-preservation for for your uh, combat or your exploration to stop and go into a roleplay. All right, now skill challenges. Skill challenges are their own unique beast, and they feel a lot like exploration most of the time, but they don't have to be. Okay, so let's roll dice, and we'll talk about how skill challenges can stay fresh and interesting. Yeah. Got an 18. What do I get? 19. Uh, yep, yep. It feels good, doesn't it? I, I, I lost with an 18. All right. Okay, what so skill challenges are usually about exploring or surviving out in the wilderness, or it's a number of different stealth checks and sleight of hand, and it tends to really lean towards the exploration pillar. Mm-hmm. But what about combat and role-playing? There are all sorts of skills that exist there. For example, when, when you're doing grapple checks, most combat maneuvers were, require athletics versus athletics and acrobatics mm-hmm. right when you are doing a skill challenge you should be thinking about what the three pillars are and how to include those uh in the entire uh challenge in and of itself so what i like to do is have my favorite one is chasing someone through a marketplace yeah as much as it's acrobatics and athletics you may have you may get grabbed by a police officer that's just on patrol. Hey, what are you doing? Stop running, right? Or you could have you turn the corner and everyone's missing and there's just like there's nobody in this dead end except for the one bum sitting there and who goes, "Uh, why are you in my back alley?" You got to talk to this guy and figure out where did this person go. Yeah. Right? So there can be other pillars in a skill challenge and frankly, we should be thinking about not just skills but maybe saves as well. Mm-hmm. Think about I think that in a skill challenge, you should be able to roll a constitution save to stop from getting winded. Yeah, no, I, I really like that. I mean, normally with skill challenges, um, for me as a DM, I, I like to leave a little bit of the choice on the players of what skill challenge they, like what skill they want to use. It should always be their choice. Yeah. Um, and, and what I will do sometimes as a, a DM in order to keep a skill challenge fresh and interesting, or fresh and interesting is I will kind of feed hints um, they're not quite hints but but like i the things i add in my description will hopefully influence the player's decisions on what skills they use i don't want to say hey roll in acrobatics or roll in athletics but if i say um the person you're chasing you see him clearly scramble to the top of this one flat roofed building just off to the bazaar what do you want to do i mean if you're in a chase kind of influencing the player's decision there to direct them what do you do when it's not an exploration? Because the obvious one is a chase. Yes. That is one that everybody always does is the chase. But when it's something, let's say, um, let's say it's a, a masquerade ball. Okay. What, what do you, what hints are you giving? What are you leading them? Um, I am giving the players like, uh, they note that the one masked woman off to the side is, uh, paying an inordinate amount of attention towards the bard or, or the, like I'm giving them little hints of kind of the intrigue that is being that is happening. Uh, you note that one of the noblemen is not standing up steadily. 
He's a bit wobbly on his feet. He might have he might have had a bit too much to drink. So as the party is kind of uh, engaging with certain aspects of the ball, I'm sliding little like tidbits of information that I'm hoping they uh, is is a good response for their character. I'm kind of tailoring these for their character as well because I find a lot of players get overwhelmed by a skill challenge and don't know what abilities to choose in front of them. Yeah, really leading them is a good idea. Um, and this isn't railroading. Because they could take another decision and then I've got to kind of uh, deal with that if they take a hard right. Once but, they have a lot of confidence, they'll start asking, hey, is there a carriage nearby? Uh, where's the nearest horse? Like they've got an idea. Yeah. They know what skill they want to use. And they're like, um, it, how wet is the ground? Right. Yeah. And Okay. All right. That's an interesting question. Why are you asking that? And they will take the lead on that. Yeah. I just want to say for those of you that are like, that's a masquerade ball. How is that a skill challenge? You're going to have some tables that are mechanic-based. They're all about the fight and what's written on their character sheet. And they don't really care about the intricacies of your your big political intrigue plot. The way to get these things out and about, the way to get this information there, you can have them attend the Masquerade Ball, but nobody here wants to roleplay. Give them a skill challenge. Yep. Throughout the night, you see this, you notice that. And we're just going to roll skill challenges to see how well you get through this. And that can be enough, right? And so skill challenges will let you kind of play and flirt with other pillars that you don't often get to. If they don't want to explore, have a skill challenge. I also like the idea of if they need to fight a Warforged Colossus, but they are level three, then they should have a skill challenge in order to be able to uh, wrap its legs up with rope. They shouldn't be in initiative necessarily doing this just having a skill challenge, right? To be able to knock down this giant behemoth Warforge. That's what skill challenges can be used for. Downtime, Dan. Town time and downtime. <laughs> what are some challenges that you can run into when you are running downtime? And what's one real simple tip that you can give to everyone at home about how to do that efficiently and effectively? Okay, let's do it. Um, I got an 18, and then you got, went ahead and rolled that again. Oh, I got a nat 20 now. Yeah, you did. I still lost on an 18. I should just not roll 18s anymore. Should I just go twice then? Is that what this is? Yeah, pretty much. This is you again. <laughs> All right. So when it comes to downtime, um, players are often just going to want to heal up and resupply. That's the big thing they want to do. But sometimes they're going to want to do a little bit of role playing. They're going to want to, even if they're not a role player, they want to make sure that their mount is okay. They left their mount in town. They went off and they did a thing in the sewers and now they're back. And how's my mount doing? Checking in with, with things. Mm -hmm. This is also their opportunity to, you know, set up with NPCs that they're checking in with and, and that kind of stuff. My, my problem with downtime is that it gets, again, repetitive. It is the same kind of, I go back to the blacksmith and I want a plus one weapon now, Right. How We need more healing potions because we just used three. We need three more, right? We're going to divvy up the loot again, right? And we're hitting the same kind of thing over and over. Oh, the artificer is crafting. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> so here's what I think about when I move into a downtime scenario. How much time has passed since your last one and what has changed? Go check in on your horse. Maybe your horse isn't being as well fed as it should be, but there's another stable nearby that's a little bit more expensive. Are you going to go spend that extra gold or are you going to just wait until you get out of this town in three or four more days and your horse is going to have to deal with it, right? Give these little, very subtle, not real impactful decisions 
to the people sitting around the table. It's about making choices in downtime. So don't let them make the same choice over and over and over again. Provide them unique scenarios. And a lot of times the answer there is what weird or different thing happened to change the status quo since their last downtime. Yeah. Um, for me, the big problem that I have is, uh, the, the paralyzation of having too many options in front of you. So there, there's going to be some things that I, as a DM, when my players hit a, a downtime, uh, time, there are going to be some things I say, guys, just take care of this after the game or take care of this away from table time. When they're sitting down and going through the gear list to see what they want. Yeah. Right. Like, say that to the awards at the end of the session, uh, after the end of the session, when you guys could kind of take care of some of this administrative stuff, we're going to focus on the character building downtime activities, right? And and that's kind of what I do because there are so many options you can take in, in, in downtime. It's kind of one of those options that it's either tons depending on what your table is or it's nothing depending on how your table plays. Yeah, if you're going to go to your temple and hear a sermon, you may have a player that wants to hear the sermon, but I bet the other five around the table don't give a shit. Don't. So I kind of weigh if this is kind of important to give it the the table time that I need to. Um, does, and does everyone want to be involved? Exactly. So if they're going to go talk to a favored NPC of uh, the majority of the party, then yes. Even if there's one player that hates that NPC, but everyone else loves them, then certainly let's have something with that NPC pop up during downtime. But... Are they going to want to measure and count exactly how many uh, dragon's teeth they got and what's the amount of copper pieces they'll get for it? No, I'm just going to be like, listen, guys, it's worth this much gold. Move on, right? You don't need to interact with that one merchant who wants it. Because if you are going to interact, that's role playing. Yeah, right. right. So when it comes to downtime, you can hand wave a lot of things. When the person that took the, the smithing background and is all gung-ho when Brad is like, hey, I want to build this armor. <laughs> Specifically, Brad is the one. Yeah, then, then you say, look, guys. Brad. Brad. <laughs> enough is enough. Nobody else cares about how many rivets are in this. Brad. Please send me a message tomorrow night. Exactly. Yeah. So the last one, the 12th, the final one of these is party politics. Yeah. And this is your meta conversations of players around the table that doesn't really have to do with their in-character decisions. No, this is more of the out-of-character decisions where they're, they're planning or they're sitting going, why? Uh, look, if if I drop darkness, then you drop fireball. Yeah, yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Right? It, and so yeah. there's a certain amount of these conversations that are going around or they're just sitting there going, do we go left or right? Yeah. And you as a DM are not involved it's the party discussing among themselves okay so what challenges are you going to run into let's do it we both rolled 16s man i'm just on fire tonight i got a 15 you're going first again adam <laughs> yay i'm winning dungeons and dragons podcast you, you can't do that uh, i can't i can win the podcast no this if you were unaware that this was a competition now you know i am doing terribly <laughs> so um with party politics the one thing that i want to say is time management yes now i've got a few things a few methods that i would use one of them is i put a d10 out on the table and when enough time goes by i just drop it from a 10 down to a 9 down to an 8 i wait for them to notice and when it hits one all right guys it's been enough time uh, another one that I use is uh, Goblin's Attack. 
you have spent too much time talking goblins attack. It's not a real fight. No. It's just a goblin or two. But it gives you... They, they just pop out of the barrel off to the left or they, they swing down from the trees. Goblins can be anywhere. Yeah, they really can. They are the rats of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, and so... Which has rats. <laughs> and so have that happen and just... Just this world is infested with goblins. I established that shit early, and here's more. The thing I'm famous for is you hear a whistling. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the whistling gets louder and louder as they are arguing around the table out of character, and then someone's getting hit by a cow that was thrown by a hill giant. Yeah, it just comes out of nowhere. That whistling is the sound of wind going past that anus just at high speeds. Yeah, or, or it's the cow screaming, but it's so far away it just sounds like a whistle at this point. So, um, but my big thing is time management. Yep. And if you have trouble coming up with in combat or in world, um, reasons for there to be, to wrap this up quickly, you don't need one because they're talking from a meta perspective. They're not having a real conversation in character. So grab an egg timer. Yep. And say, guys, this has been fantastic. You've been talking about this for eight minutes. I'm setting the timer. Wrap this up. What are we doing? I also will use a lot of that time as a DM, as the party sitting there and planning, um, their next move, I am sitting back and planning my next move as well. And if I get to a conclusion before they do, that is when I will start really counting down on them as well. Um, so if if they are trying to figure out whether they're turning right or left to go down which path of the tunnel, I am double-checking my notes. I'm making sure that the monsters are all lined up while they're talking. You're, and you're, then, you're moving a little sticky note to the next page in the monster manual. Exactly. And then when they say, okay, here's what we're going to do, I go, okay, one second, continue. Because I am now back to being engaged as a dungeon master. Um, I don't let that go too long, though. I, I very actively keep it minor. It's a refreshing, like a refresher thing. I might even make some notes about where I want the campaign to go in the future if I'm confident with what I'm doing next. Yeah, right? and even if I'm just listening to them talk and someone says, we haven't gone into the water in years and we need to go into the water. All right, fine. Water's on the table now. I'm, I'm definitely going to write that in in the future because exactly. I'm listening. But I hear what you're saying, right? And I just want to say that, again, when you come back to it, if they're saying the same shit over and over and over and over and over again, you're not getting anywhere. They're spinning their wheels and there is no resolution. Yeah. Just move forward. Yeah, yeah. Put put an end to it as the DM. Remember, you are the referee. That is one of your jobs. Referees keep an eye on the play clock. That's all that this is. So don't feel like you're the bad guy by saying, guys, wrap it up. All right, so those are the big dynamic encounters, but we have a couple others that are really worth talking about here. One of them is puzzles. We talked a little bit about it before, but let's actually like dive into it. Why do some people hate, some DMs just hate building puzzles? What tip can you give them? Sure. A six. I got a seven. I'm still winning with a seven. I can't win with low numbers. I can't win with high numbers. You what should, is this you should try with more high numbers then. Okay, I'll try with higher numbers. All right, so one of the big issues that people have with puzzles is coming up with, like, when there's a single solution to the puzzle. And if that puzzle is simply you need to pick this item up and put it over here, and they cannot for the life of them figure it out, or they, they all roll way too low on their perception or investigation, and they haven't found the item. Mm -hmm. How are they supposed to get by this? There's a singular answer. What do you do? And I would say don't have a singular answer to a puzzle. And that's honestly my tip here. Is yeah. Do not have a singular answer to a puzzle. Have there be multiple ways of doing it. And and honestly, having an NPC sit by and say, what about this? What about this? What about this? Over and over again can be useful. 
I make that NPC unreliable. They don't always have the right answer, but but they may look at it and say, "Oh, hey, that is a that's an altar. There's nothing on the altar." And they wander over and they pick up a torch off the out, out of a wall sconce. They walk over and they put it there and they say, "Nope, nothing." They pick up the torch, they light it, and they put it down again. Nope, still nothing. I've told them now the altar is probably the clue. That's yeah. that's what I've given them, and and that NPC has gotten them there. I, I know it's not the torch. They're unreliable. That's not the right answer. They'll never figure it out by themselves. So don't have multiple ways of of giving them. It's You can have a single answer. Don't have it only be one way of finding that answer. Exactly. Have multiple yep. clues pointing at the same answer. And be open as a DM for a logical, rational solution that you haven't thought of. True. Absolutely. But, but when you're designing it, look at your archetypes. Well, the way that we have it, we have a warrior, a priest, a criminal, a mage, and an outdoorsman. Yeah. So when you sit there and you're designing this puzzle, make sure that all five of them can solve it on their own. In a variety of ways. Yeah. Each one will have a different way of doing it. But if you have three warriors, a priest, and a mage, don't make this a criminal-specific puzzle. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it needs to be disarmed. Shit. <laughs> or 60% of the clues need to be able to be figured out by warriors. Right? Whatever it is. It's literally written on the walls, guys. Come on. Just smash it. <laughs> so, um, but but that's that's my my big tip. For and, and I would I would agree is is be open to having multiple solutions to a puzzle. Also, try to make your puzzles unique. If every single puzzle is, you know, collect the three patterns to open a door. No, well, you must collect a separate three patterns. If this is just Resident door. Evil where you need the four different colored cards for the laboratory and then the four different colored keys for the castle yeah. and the four different colored... Or it's or it's Skyrim and you walk into the room and there's three different heads and that corresponds and the next is three different heads but still corresponds to the door. Come on, guys. Like, like That's put, lazy design. That's lazy design. Fix your crap. And, and your players will know it's lazy design. And they may not call you on it, but they know it, and they're just waiting for you to do something unique. Riddles. Riddles. This one is my favorite of all of them because you know me, I'm, I'm a linguist. I, I love this stuff. You Let, are very cunning at it, too. Yes, let's roll initiative. Fucking four. God damn it. What did I roll, Dan? Did I get a nine there? Was that a nine? That I was rolled? a nine, yeah. My life is great. Sorry for the cursing. So, riddles. The problem with the riddle is that there is only one answer. It's very much a puzzle, but it's a linguistics puzzle. Even if that is, if the riddle is runic based or, mm-hmm. or there's a translation issue, the way that we define the difference between a riddle and a puzzle is that a riddle is about, uh, it's more of the role playing and the knowing an answer to a question, uh, pillar than puzzles, which tend to be exploration based. Those are not hard and fast rules. But riddles tend to have a one singular answer, and it's about the answer, not the outcome. Yeah. Puzzles are about the outcome. Did we put enough weight on this pressure plate to get the thing? You can use a stone, or you can use the barbarian, whatever it is. <laughs> there, there are multiple ways of getting past this. But a, Goliath, those are one and the same thing. Yeah, but a riddle really only has that one answer. And what, and, what, what, what do you do when they, well, they don't, don't get, the get it, right? Yeah. And so I sit back and... And I have watched, I have watched so many tables just flounder and not be able to get it. And they say, we want more puzzles and riddles. We want more puzzles and riddles. And I hand it to them and they don't get it. Yeah. It, for me, who's a bit of a glutton for punishment in this regard, I love riddles. Sometimes, depending on the type of riddle, it just goes over my head. So 
the thing that I do is I say, even if there's only one answer, sometimes I will say you must solve three or five riddles, what, whatever it is to, to, to open it up to get to the next level. I put a time limit or a consequence of failure. You will be able to move forward, but it is preferable that you get this shit right. Mm-hmm. Because the more riddles that you get wrong or the longer it takes you, the worse things are going to get. And when we come to Tim the Enchanter standing beside the the bridge that must ask you three questions. What is your name? What is your favorite color? Those ones are really, really simple and straightforward. It's all about the third one and getting that one right. And depending on how long he's willing to sit there and listen, because remember, in Monty Python, the Holy Grail, one of them says, uh, um, uh, well, uh, and he just tosses them over the cliff. Yep. Because it just took too long. Do not toss your players off cliffs. Do not toss most of your players off cliffs. You can toss Brad off a cliff. Toss Brad off a cliff every day. But do not just say, you know what, you fail, you die. Yeah. But there should be some amount of consequence to make this harder. For example, he just says, okay, fine, you can get across the bridge, but, and he snaps his fingers, and half of the boards disappear, and now it's a number of of athletic checks across. Yeah. Right? Like It's that kind of thing that you should be looking at, whereas nobody else has to make those checks, but you do. The way I approach a riddle is I look at it, I try to solve it. Just myself. As the DM, when I'm doing my prep, I'll look at a riddle, try to solve it. Google's a great source for riddles if you want them. If you, That's easy enough to do. Do not look up the riddles if you are challenged with them at the table. But yeah. as a DM, finding riddles. Yeah. So I'll look at them, and if it takes me longer than like 10 seconds to get it, um, I will put hints and foreshadow that this riddle is coming. Now, I won't tell them that a riddle is coming, but I will put little things like if if the answer to the riddle is the moon, for whatever reason, there'll be lunar artwork. And I'll start like teasing that this kind of stuff is coming up, right? Yeah, a lot of that stuff can be like, hey, uh, how many kings were, were in this time period and whatnot? But there's a mural six rooms back with a painting of kings. See who remembers it, right? Right. Um, and, and I will put these there and I'll, I'll put more clues than I think I need, mostly because there'll be rooms where that clues are missed. Now, if the party has discovered one or two of them and have even vocally at the table said, oh, that's going to be important later, I know to dial back on the clues and I will just straight up remove some of the clues in future rooms before the puzzle. I don't want to make it too easy on them. But this is one way I deal with riddles specifically is, Give them little hints leading up to them, or even in the room as the rid- of the riddle itself. Hide hints. Every single time a party I've experienced has trouble trying to solve a riddle, they'll ask, can I roll an arcana or an intelligence check to uh, get a hint? No, but I want you to roll this roll and see what happens. Yeah. Right? If you want to get a hint, here's how you get a hint. Roll an athletics, wizard. Oh, really? You make them, you make them grab something else. Or, or or something, right? Whoever's asking the question is the one who's going to roll the roll. And if it's an athletics thing, the wizard's going to be like, oh, wait, this, right? Uh, I've got to climb the wall to get to this. Like, uh, you're standing on one foot for a bit too long and, and you have to, like, shift your weight over. Or you, you go to take a seat and the chair flips and you look on the other so- underside of the chair and there's a thing. That you notice, right? Like I will, I will try to add an interesting hint. Yeah, you you have to you have to succeed in order to get a hint. You can't just pull it out of your own brain. Exactly, it's an environmental. You thing. have to have some sort of 
describe descriptive narrative event happen to get a hint. It's not just, oh, this makes more sense to you. I will make that check easier for characters who are smarter than their players, which which happens all the time. It's something I deal with uh, on the you know weekly basis, playing a character who's got more than 20 intelligence, and I know I'm not rocking a 16. So I'll make it a little bit easier uh, for the high intelligence people for the riddle or uh, the, the stronger people for the puzzle, whatever it is. I'll make it that much easier for them because they're physically capable or mentally capable of doing it, but I will definitely have hints strewn about. Okay, so those are our tips and tricks. How do we properly balance the difficulty level? Because we're talking about this over and over again about the idea of it being too hard Mm -hmm. for the players. What if they can't solve the puzzle, right? What if they feel overwhelmed by suddenly ending up in a skill challenge that they're not ready for. What happens if we have party politics that are just going on too long? How do we find the proper balance? So what I'd like to do is roll initiative on this because I want to talk about how you balance an encounter appropriately. You specifically, Dan, and and me specifically, Adam. What are our tools that we use to keep things balanced? Okay, let's roll Hey, I got an 18, and it actually came out with me being a winner this time. Yep, I got a 2. Okay, um, I like it that a lot better without the 0 at the end of it. Anyways, the first thing I do, of course, if combat is in any way, shape, or form involved, I'm looking at CRs and balancing that against my parties. So a CR is, a, is the challenge rating of whatever monster it is that requires a party of five characters to overcome. So if a CR is like an ogre, which is a CR2, you need five level two characters to take out the ogre, right? And that's kind of how the CR system is uh, balanced. Now, later levels, the CRs matter a little bit less because magic items and boons and various Some things. spells. If, if, you have, that. if you have an eighth level spell that prepped and ready to go, you're waltzing through it, but maybe you spent it in a previous encounter, you don't have it, and now it's hard. Yeah. Right? And you can't prep that shit ahead of time. You 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 can't. So um, the what I tend to do if I'm planning is I will follow the CRs if there's combat involved. If I'm going to be building a very dynamic encounter, I will try to shoot low on the CRs um, because the other aspects of either exploration or role-playing or more combat coming in are going to unbalance that CR system a little bit, but it's a good kind of starting point for me. Um, the other thing I do is I look at what my players, um, sorry, I look at what the characters at the table are and uh, specifically their classes, things they've proven to me as a DM that they are good at or they are bad at. And I will kind of using that knowledge change my DCs. Now, now there are set DCs. Like if it's a five, it's an easy task. If it's a 10, it's a normal task. If it's a 15, it's an intermediate task. That is garbage. That is out the window by level eight because your rogue is not good. Like, I, what level is it where masterminds just can't get less than a 10 and investigators can't get less than a 12 on some, like it's just, there's no, that doesn't work. There's no such thing as an easy roll at five then because it's an easy roll at 15. And I will scale that to their level as we get to it. Yeah, I was getting to so, that. Sorry, I, sorry, that just infuriates <laughs> me. As a DM running a level 20 party right now, what possible skill can I give them? So what I do is I balance that against the kind of median proficiency level. 
So if a super easy task is a CR or is a uh, DC five for a level one character, then a level nine character will have a because they're a, a proficiency level three at that point will have a DC 10, right? That will be your easy task because it's that much easier, right? Um, because your proficiency helped out, right? So I, I'll kind of use proficiency as a guideline, CR as a guideline, and this um, incremental five step up of DCs to understand difficulty challenges. See, the, my problem with that, I understand what you're, where you're coming from, and my problem with that is there sh- the investigator should just be good enough. The mastermind should just be good enough to get this stuff. Just because it's it's hard for a low level um, and it's easy for uh, for a high level character doesn't mean that I should scale up the difficulty of things for high level characters. They should just automatically be rewarded for sinking those skill points and, and the time and effort, the levels. There's no skill points in that, I know that. But sinking their proficiency and their their ability points into it because they're focused on that. So that that's rewarding for them. I am frustrated because you consistently are rolling over 30 on perception, right? As an investigator fighter at at level 20, right? Um, I get like, there are just some characters that are going to roll up into the thirties above 35. Sometimes how do you, how do you handle that? And the simple answer is you don't roll for it anymore. You give it to them. Yep. Right. Everything is easy. They are experts and that's just it. So I like the idea of it becoming more and more difficult. when it comes to things like, uh, we've got to jump across the chasm. Everybody is really athletic and they're able to do this stuff kind of naturally anyway. So I'm going to make that chasm a little bit wider so that it feels a little bit scarier. And this is knowing your party. And that's knowing my party. But when it comes to these automatic successes that exist out there, and there will be lots of them. Yeah. When you hit tiers three and four, even at tier two, they're going to have people that have like plus 11 in things. So, I mean, so, if, if you're, sorry, if your rogue or your monk has a plus 11 and the passive perception, like into stealth and the passive perception of the guard is a, is a two or an eight. I mean, they're never going to hear them. So why are we rolling? No, I, I, I agree. Give them those kind of things. Yes. But th- I mean, I still want to make those skills useful. Having uh, like every single perception hand wave well the guard has that the dragon doesn't i know but like uh as a player i know having every single perception and whatnot hand wave makes all of the work i've put into it almost feel like i've gone too far i still want there to be some sort of narrative control over it so one of the things I, i like to do to kind of balance that out if you have players who have that really really capable ability um at at whatever it is is give them the ability to use it but as an informative sense. So uh, one of the ways I'll, I'll put this is with like um, a perception check. Your radar of a gnome monk sees the thing they need to get to, but they're otherwise preoccupied. So they will tell someone else to go get it. Yeah, right? you put an extra level I of put complication. put an extra level of complication in, right? Um, your wizard who is... Uh, Fonts of information and all things arcane knows the answer, but cannot hit the runes in the order, so must direct. There, there are certain things 
Like, they're too tall for him to reach, so get the Goliath to do it. Yeah. Something like that. Like, it, it, it is adding a certain, a, another level of... You add a secondary skill sometimes to it to be able to get it across. It, exactly, right? And uh, this is more stuff I would do at higher levels when these skills get a bit crazy, right? Um, and, and this is going to uh, actively encourage your players to figure out what cool skill combinations they can now use to do things. Whereas before you're trying to beat a DC, now you're trying to build a combination. Okay. So one of the things... Uh, are you done? Do you have more? Yes. I've, I've got lots on this, but go ahead. All right. So I, I want to talk really quickly about dynamic encounters specifically. I can go I can go off... We can have episodes and episodes and episodes on how to build encounters. Mm-hmm. But specifically dynamic encounters. Now, I look at the CR rating... And for every new thing that interrupts, I drop it by one CR rating. So if you are coming in, if you're a level 10 party, but you're super powered, you're operating at a level a level 11. And I know that because I'm watching your regular damage output and your average damage output in the first encounter after a short rest. Not your third encounter, your first one. At your optimal spell slots and smites and... Um, and battle master points. Oh yeah, when you have all of your key points, when when all of it's there for you, and everybody's just operating at a hundred percent, and the engine is running smoothly, how much damage output are you doing? And I will I will figure out what CR creature you can handle. Yeah. So you may be level ten, but you're going to fight CR eleven creature. The thing that would interrupt you if there's ever a secondary combat that comes in. If I've strung together nine of these uh, encounters. Right, and you come in with a secondary encounter or a tertiary or whatever it is beyond that. I continue to drop that encounter difficulty by one every time. So that CR eleven fight turned into a CR ten fight, which turned into a CR nine fight, right? Because you're expending resources, and that's my big thing about dynamic encounters. What resources have you spent? Yes. Um, The other thing too is that when you're doing exploration or role playing, and you are trying to to balance even skill challenges as well. There are going to be a certain number of checks that have to happen here. Survival and and um, uh, perception checks, investigation, obviously, for exploration. You've got insight, persuasion, deception, intimidation, sometimes performance, right, for your role-playing. And then skill checks can be just about anything. I'm watching how many successes and failures people are getting. I'm watching to see which skills they're using all of the time. And depending on how difficult I want to make it, I will use specifically, or I will create encounters that specifically use um, abilities that they're not good at, if I want to make it harder. There's a really useful guide in the DMG about combat encounter difficulty, but they don't really get into any of the other stuff, mm-hmm. right? There's nothing really about the other pillars. When when you end up with a um, some downtime and you want the the blacksmith to start rolling to see how well they do on crafting a piece of armor, for example. But they're out in the middle of the wilderness. I'm going to make that DC higher. And that's what you're talking about here, Dan, is is how good are they at things? I'm looking at what else is out in the world that's going to affect them negatively. Yeah. Or positively. Sometimes you're just going to be able to do this one thing because everything lines up perfectly for you. Yeah. Right? For example... You may have to do a performance as a bard and convince everybody in town square to join your cause. But it's a festival and everyone's drunk and are wanting some music. Right. Then you're going to have disadvantage. But if you're at the bar 
and everyone loves you because you have actually succeeded on a number of performance checks already, then it, that DC is going to be lower because you have everyone's attention. Yeah. And they are drunk and they love you. And you could say anything and they're going to cheer for you. Right. So depending on the circumstances, I'm going to change the DC. And it's not about what the player can do. It's the environment that they're in as well. Exactly. And that is a big, big, big factor when it comes to building and balancing encounters is what's going on around you. And how is it changing and shifting the difficulty of things? One of the things that I absolutely love is the mage in the background casting mage armor on the, on the thugs up front. Really just an attack is another skill challenge, right? You just have a numerical value. You're adding to a D20 roll. Mm -hmm. It's the exact same thing. So that's your shifting DC, but now we call it an AC. Right. And that's all it comes down to is you are moving it up or down. You're, you're using counter spell against people and they're wasting their seventh level spell. You're burning through their resources. And so they're going to be very, very scared about do I, do I waste a six level spell now? Yep. Do, do I do that? How many more counter spells does that guy have? Especially when they're holding onto a wand and doing it. Right. Because it could be anybody with any number of charges on a wand. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so. Um, by adding these more environmental and circumstantial conflicts, it's less about what's on the character sheet and more about how are they going to get past this issue. And the harder it is, the more difficult that issue is, uh, the easier the second issue is going to be. Yeah. Because um, I think that you should be aiming for, remember, these are your protagonists. You want them to win. Yep. Right? You should be aiming for them to succeed. What happens if everything goes to pot? If it's all just turned to shit? And your guys are halfway through a combat encounter. Three of the five of them are uh, on death's door. Yeah. Right? And you've got an exploration. You're supposed to chase them. So your guys are going to leave the unconscious ones behind. What do you do? How do you how do you get out of, of a dynamic encounter? Let's, Let's roll. roll. Well, I mean, I, I got that one where I got to go first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a right. nine. To your 14. Again, it comes down to motivation. Know what your bad guys want, and you don't have to go for the kill every time. When it comes to combat, sometimes knocking them out is just as, as good, and then have consequences. You take their gear. They are stripped down to their underwear and tossed in jail, yep. right? Um, or if it's an exploration thing, they get lost, and they've got to go back to square one and report back that, hey, we couldn't find the place. Yep. What other hints do we need? If it's a skill challenge, they just fail and they get suddenly mired into a basic combat encounter. Or there's a role play where they're running across roofs and they fail their acrobatics and they land. They bust through the roof, land in someone else's house, and they're like, hey, what are you doing here? The skill challenge failed. The person got away. And now you're stuck dealing with some babushka who just, who just <laughs> doesn't want you. You just spilled their borscht. I don't know why this went Russian all of a sudden. I don't know why. But it did. So so uh, you have to deal with this new scenario. Yeah. Um, and it's not about killing them. No. It, it, it It's just about adding a consequence for the failure. And when you're building these encounters, you'll kind of have an idea of w not necessarily how they'll mess it up. But you could have an idea of if they mess it up, here is where we're going to go. So... Um, have an idea where if if they mess up at this stage of the skill challenge, they're going to fall through and do this, or 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 
have uh, the skill challenges are hard because you kind of got to be on your toes depending on what skills they choose to roll. Yep. But for like a if you have a combat encounter that is shifting into an exploration encounter, but the combat encounter goes poorly, well, that exploration encounter isn't happening now because everyone's unconscious. So you have a consequence of failure where okay, they lost this the first step. They lost the com- the combat, so here is where the reality is now. The most common one that I've seen is when you have a role play encounter that's supposed to turn into something else and they just fucking charm your NPC. Mm-hmm. What do you do with that? They've won this. So let them win. Yeah, exactly. Right? And and that's it. And it may be yeah. frustrating <laughs> to you. And now how do you get them onto the next thing? And how do we get over into that that next location over there? Yeah. It's supposed to be exploration, whatever it is, but let them do it. They've earned this yeah. and and the idea of them taking a dynamic encounter and unknowingly turning it into a regular encounter is technically a win and i would reward them at the end of the session by saying i can't believe you guys sidestepped this whole other thing that i had going yeah, on yeah yeah and that is a reward for your players nine times out of ten like being able to just like derail things in a certain way Although, like I, I mentioned that there should be a consequence for failure but there should be a consequence of extreme success as well. Yeah, and right? and sometimes your dynamic encounters, because we're talking about taking one conflict and adding another one, Yeah, right? That's going to interrupt the first, or having a series of them with downtime or party politics, or yeah. like we we can't we can't guess what every one of these little things is that they're going to fight about. Are right? Like there's so much stuff that could potentially happen that in a, a failure or a success. Could just end this whole thing. If you say that, hey, you know what? On round two, the goblin boss is going to blow a horn. Every goblin can blow a horn. And any one of the five of them could blow it and summon an ogre or a troll onto the battlefield. Right? And you're like, okay, there we go. It's round two. It's early. They're going to do this. And then your party drops that well-placed fireball. And, well, there goes all your options. Or, Or one of them just realizes that, wait a minute, we can just cut the rope bridge. And now... Your exploration across the rope bridge is gone. The goblins are gone. And the ogres on the other side is never going to get to you. Your party defeated that encounter, that dynamic encounter, by thinking outside of the box. They get full experience. They don't even get full experience. I'm giving out inspiration dice at that point, right? Like, um, they're going to get some sort of, of boon, some sort of reward for it. And don't be disappointed. So the last thing that I would have to say here is over prep. Uh, I know, I know that makes Dan <laughs> nervous because he doesn't like to prep, but having an idea for additional encounters in your back pocket, and this can be stuff that didn't get used in previous sessions, mm-hmm. right? So having a random table sitting there ready to go because they got past three of your five dynamic encounters for the session and you're done at eight o'clock when everyone's expecting to go till 11, that's a problem. So having a couple other things in the background is ready to go, ready to blow up uh, in their faces just to kind of drag some time out is not necessarily a bad thing. The other thing that you can always do is say, hey, guys, you beat this session early. Congrats. I have nothing else prepped for this. Yeah. You guys are just super effective at this. And um, how about we all go hang out? Let's go to the bar. <laughs> Right? Like, whatever it is. How do you guys feel about that? Let's talk about this. What did you think was going to happen? Right? And you can just, from a meta perspective, unwind. Yeah. I mean, um, I would encourage you, if if they're like in a dungeon delve and they just pull the horseshoe out of their butt and they get it 
the, there were early. six different ways to go. They went the right way first. Yeah. What like what do you do? I would give them some random encounters on travel time back. Or, or like, I, w- I would try to insert some logically placed random encounters, which you could just roll up out of the back of the Xanathars of the DMG. Like, I yeah, again, I have my own tables. Or, or, I- or you prep your own tables beforehand. I'm, I'm coming more as the the guy who doesn't like to over prep. So I, 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 I know these resources are available to me. So I'll do that. There's also random encounter generators you can find off Google uh, that you can that you can pull in the last ditch effort if you really need to and then say guys like being clear and transparent with your players isn't isn't a bad thing in the response that you guys kicked the hell out of this out of this session well done you guys have to travel back give me a minute while i pull up some encounters for you guys and then go Everybody go take five. I need five to quickly slam something together. There's nothing wrong with that. The other thing, too, is that, you know what? I'm going to give you more rewards if you do it better. And that's just it. I'm not going to give you more experience necessarily. But you're still only going to get that one plus one weapon at the end of this dungeon. No one's getting plus nine weapons because you defeated it quickly. But you're going to get a higher percentage of gold. That that one NPC is going to take a little bit more of a shine to you. Yeah, there, yes, there will be something. If if you get hired out for this job and you come back early, good for you. Yeah. Also, be aware that means I'm giving you harder jobs next time. Yeah, right, and, <laughs> and it can it can evolve. No, but I'm saying like reward the players. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, you as a DM will know now how to balance appropriately for the future. But when it goes poorly, that's not a bad thing. These guys are supposed to win. And if it goes poorly where they fail and they're all knocked out, that's okay because you will now have new conflict. Now that we have a good grasp on how to build dynamic encounters, let's take a week and allow our creative juices to stop rippling. Hopefully this will give us some opportunities to come up with some interesting ideas about how to descend a city into chaos. Join us next week when we explore dynamic encounters during a riot. Thanks for listening to this episode of the new It's a Mimic Campaign Builder series. You can find us at www.itsamimic.com and on iTunes, Spotify, and most podcast catchers. We're also available on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and more. And would love to hear about your thoughts on how you would use this episode in your own homebrew campaigns. I'm Dan. And I'm not Dan. And he's Adam. And we'll be back with more prep work next week. Hey, I'm winning Dungeons and Dragons you, podcast. You can't do that. Uh, I can't. I can win the podcast. No. This, if you were unaware that this was a competition, now you know. I am doing terribly. <laughs> okay. Bye.